This is episode number 398 with Lynn Twist. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my friends? My third physical book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy, is out right now. I am so excited and I cannot wait for you to read it. Honestly, I could not be more proud of Comparisonitis. Number one, New York Times best-selling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times best-selling author Gabby Bernstein said, Since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this book a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. My hope is that the same holds true for you. If you want to finally free yourself from comparison, fall madly in love with yourself and experience genuine deep happiness like never before, this book is for you. If you want to be a better friend, partner, parent, family member, colleague or human, If you want to experience genuine happiness, have more energy to go after the things that truly matter to you. If you want to free yourself from expectations, unleash your creativity, feel more liberated than you've ever felt before in your life, be free to live your life for you and no one else, feel peace deep from within, truly appreciate your body and your life, experience a radical shift towards authenticity, and unleash the courage to go after your dreams, then head to comparisonitis.com and get your copy and all my awesome extra goodies that I've created for you for free. Not only do you get the book, you will get the official Comparisonitis workbook, a gorgeous Comparisonitis wallpaper for your phone, my ebook, How to Create a Soul-Expanding Comparisonitis Book Club, Not one, but two of my brand new 8D Zen Tone Advanced Brainwave Technology Meditations, which will give you one hour of meditation in just 11 minutes, plus two never-been-heard-or-released-before interviews with global spiritual thought leaders. Just head to comparisonitis.com and please share the book on social media and tell me your top takeaways. I cannot wait for you to read this book. For more than 40 years, Lynn has been a recognized global visionary committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. From working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, to the refugee camps in Ethiopia, and the threatening rainforests of the Amazon, as well as guiding the philanthropy of some of the world's wealthiest families. Lynn's on-the-ground work has brought her a deep understanding of people's relationship with money. 
Her breadth of knowledge and experience has led her to profound insights about the social tapestry of the world and the historical landscape of the times we are currently living in. She is an acclaimed author. Her compelling stories and life experiences inspired Lynn to write her best-selling, award-winning book, The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life, which has been translated into nine languages, which is pretty amazing. Lynn has co-presented on stages with some of today's most influential thought leaders, including Oprah Winfrey, Marianne Williamson, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Jane Goodall, Van Jones, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And in today's episode, we dive deep into our relationship with money. But we kick off and we start with Lynn's life-changing spiritual experience that transformed her life. We also talk about what is the Pachamama Alliance, how to heal your relationship with money, and the book, The Soul of Money, that can help you do that. We also dive deep into the three highly toxic lies of scarcity. This stuff is so powerful for transforming your money mindset. You do not want to miss this. And we also go into the three golden steps to transform your relationship with money and how they can unlock the doors to wealth for you and how success has been hijacked by money. And for everything that Lynn and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 398. And now let's bring on this beautiful soul, Lynn Twist. Lynn, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. You have been on my dream list for a very long time to have on my show. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. And I'm so happy to make whatever dream you had come true here. What I had for breakfast this morning was a a latte. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) An almond latte. Oh, how good is almond, like almond milk, almond and everything. Oh, so good. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, I agree. Well, yeah, like I said, I'm so excited to have you here. You have an incredible story. You have been on such a journey. You have done so much and I want to cover it all today, but can you tell us your story for those that haven't heard about you and the work that you do in the world and how you got to where you are today. How did this all unfold for you? Oh my goodness. So that's quite a question that could take, you know, a couple hours, but I'll just say that I began really my work in the world, which is, I think what you're probably asking about, right when I was a young woman had, I was out of college. I was married. I had three small children I had started a a school in San Francisco called Pacific Primary School with my husband, and I was totally devoted to that. And, you know, I had gotten a degree in education, and I just thought my dharma was childhood education, early childhood education. And then I also was a substitute teacher and a music, dance, and drama teacher at another school. So I was so much into education. And I happened to have the good fortune of taking something called the EST training, which was a human potential training in the 70s that was very, very popular in the United States and it became a worldwide phenomenon and sort of realized, oh my God, I can make a difference with my life. I can make a real significant difference with my life. That whole program was about personal and societal transformation. And through that, I met and had the opportunity to work with Buckminster Fuller, the great engineer, architect, scientist, humanitarian, grandfather of the future. 
And through the S training and Buckminster Fuller, I got involved in something called the Hunger Project, a commitment to end world hunger, to really end world hunger, not by redistributing food, but by recognizing the deep humanity in all of us and that all of us would, if we could do anything about it, we would not allow a billion children to go hungry every day, that we just wouldn't be able to stand it if we were related in a way that had integrity. And that drew me in to just give my heart and soul, my whole family got involved in what was called the Hunger Project at that time and still exists. And so I got very, very, very involved in ending world hunger, which took me to India, Bangladesh, Sub-Saharan Africa, all over the world, really, because I was in charge of fundraising. So I was fundraising wherever people had financial resources. And I was working on ending hunger in places where people did not have financial resources, but had other kinds of resources, courage, commitment, resilience, you know, the kind of qualities that often affluent nations are a little bit thin in. And I learned so much through the work of Ending World Hunger. And it took me all over the world. And it really educated me and transformed me. My my husband got involved, my children got involved. And I even had the great privilege of working with Mother Teresa in India, which was a, a great, great honor. You can imagine just a life-altering experience. And then at a certain point in my commitment uh, to end hunger, and I was running fundraising all over the world in 53 countries and operations in even more countries. So I was full out, you know, I didn't have a free second and I had three kids and, you know, I was a busy, a busy bee. <laughs> I had an extraordinary disruption or interruption. I did a favor for a friend who was a large donor who asked me to do some work for him in Guatemala. And we weren't working in Guatemala. I didn't know anything about Guatemala. I didn't know anything about South America or Central America. I was working in Africa and Asia. It just wasn't even occurring to me. It was kind of over there. That was somebody else's business. Because in Central and South America, hunger was not an issue. It was more like poverty. So we weren't working in that part of the world. But when I got to Guatemala through a series of extraordinary mystical events, I ended up in a shamanic ceremony on the top of a mountain with 11 other people, including a man named John Perkins, who was a white shaman who had contacted and connected us with a Mayan shaman, a Guatemalan shaman. And in that shamanic ceremony, my first ever, 1994, I had a whole series of visions that were simply extraordinary. There was no medicine. There was only the shaman's voice and the drum. And it was the middle of the night on a starry, starry night in the mountains of Totonicapan, Guatemala, lying around a fire with our feet towards the fire. And the shaman told us to journey. He spoke in Mayan and then uh, John translated from Mayan to, to Spanish and then to English. And he told us to journey. I didn't even know what that meant, but I closed my eyes, lying down around this fire, all of us like a big wagon wheel. And listening to the shaman's voice, which was so hypnotic, so mesmerizing, so absolutely, you know, kind of beautiful, his singing, his chanting, and then this drumbeat, this constant drumbeat, it put me in a kind of altered state, a, another reality, and my right arm started to turn into a, a some sort of a quivering thing, and I realized it was a wing, and then my left arm turned into some sort of quivering other thing. And it turned into what I now realize was a wing and a strange thing grew on my face, which I would now realize was a beak. And I could not stay lying there for one more second. And with my eyes closed, I began to extend 
these wings and lift myself up. I had to fly. And as I got up higher and higher, I looked down and I saw myself and all the people like a wagon wheel around the fire. I could hear the shamans chanting his voice. It was very, very clear in my in my hearing. I could hear the drumbeat, but I was flying farther and farther into the night sky. And at a certain point, I realized it was dawning and I looked down and I was flying over a vast, 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 nearly unending forest of green that was so beautiful, so glorious, so gorgeous. And I looked down through the treetops and I could see all the way to the forest floor and I could see the little critters and animals on the forest floor. So I had excellent vision. And then I would lift up my head and look way far forward. And it was just magnificent. You know, it was sunrise. It was green. It was it was exotic, hypnotic, ecstatic, blissful. And then these disembodied faces of men with orange geometric face paint on their faces, yellow, red, and black feather crowns on their heads started to float up through the canopy, through the top of the trees, to the bird, to me, and started to call to the bird in this strange tongue that I didn't understand, but it was so mesmerizing. Their their communication it was almost like singing to me. And then they would disappear, and I would keep flying, and then they would appear again, and they would call to the bird, and then they would disappear, and then they would appear again, and it went on and on. And it was it was extremely beautiful. It was deeply moving. It was life altering. It was, you know, kind of epic, an epic, ecstatic experience. And I loved it. And then at a certain point, I heard a very loud bang, 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 bang drumbeat. And it sort of, it actually woken me, got me out of whatever that trance was. And I remember sitting up and realizing that I didn't have wings or a beak, that I was a human being. And I opened my eyes and right across the circle, and the fire now was absolutely down to embers, so it had been quite a while, was the shaman, like I'm looking straight at, at you on my screen here. And he gave me a strange look. And then he he asked each person to share about their, their journey. And when it came to me, I shared what I've shared with you. And every single person, there were 12 of us, had a very strange, exotic, hypnotic, amazing dream. Everybody had turned into an animal. And then when we got to my friend who had been trained as a shaman, my friend John Perkins is his name, a white man from North America, a friend of mine, he shared very much the same dream as my own. And that was sort of shocking. And then the shaman completed the ceremony, dismissed the other people, and told John and I to stay and told us we were being communicated to. It was not a vision. It was not a journey. We were the receptors of a call from the forest and a call from people, indigenous people, and we needed to go to them. He, he was absolutely adamant about it. I was working on ending world hunger. I had work in Africa. This was just a short leave from my work. So I didn't kind of buy it. I thought it was pretty cool, but I didn't really think that I would drop everything and go to the Amazon rainforest, which is where John, my friend John Perkins, said, Lynn, I know who they are. I know where they are. They are the Achuar people in the most remote rainforest on earth, the Ecuadorian Amazon. We must go to them. They're asking for first contact. I didn't even know what that meant. I just thought, I can't, I can't do that. I'm ending world hunger. I have huge responsibilities. 
So I told John, you do that. I'm going to Africa. I went on to Africa and was in a meeting in a, a hotel in Accra, Ghana, in the uh, conference room on the main floor. And there were eight people in that meeting, Ghanaian people, five men and three women. And the five men were sitting around the table and they were having a, a discussion, the men and women. And I was sitting in on a board meeting for the Ghanaian Hunger Project. And at a certain point in the meeting, the men started having orange geometric face paint appear on their blue black faces. And I was shocked and stunned and scared and disoriented. But I saw that nobody was responding to this. So I, I thought I was imagining it. And I went to the ladies room, which ladies do. That's how we pull ourselves together. <laughs> and just got in there and washed my face and kind of splashed it with cold water and realized, yes, I've gone crazy a little bit. And then I got it together and went back into the meeting. And then it happened again. And I burst into tears. Everybody suddenly stopped the action. What's wrong, Lynn? And even the men with the orange geometric face paint wanted to know what was wrong. And of course, I didn't say what I saw. I told them I was ill, that I couldn't stay, that I needed to go back to the United States. And, and so I did. And all the way home, I saw the faces on the plane, whether my eyes were open or shut. And when I finally got home, I contacted my friend, John Perkins. He told me he had been in the Amazon while I was in Africa. And the Achwa people were waiting for us, that they were calling for first contact, that he and I needed to bring them 10 other people for contact that they'd saw in their dreams and visions, that contact was inevitable and that it would come sooner or later. They even saw that it was coming in the year 2000. This was in 1994. And so they were calling for modern world friends to help them understand the modern world so they would have modern friends when the contact came. And they would know how to defend their forest and defend themselves against the challenges of the modern world. And that journey, I'm telling you all that, because that started what's called the Pachamama Alliance. Pachamama is a word that means Mother Earth, or more fully, the Earth, the sky, the universe, and all time. And the Pachamama Alliance is an alliance between the indigenous people of the sacred headwaters or region of the Amazon and conscious, committed people in the modern world like you and all your listeners for the sustainability of life. Then through all of this, because I was a fundraiser for the Hunger Project and then later for the Pachamama Alliance, I did a lot of work to understand people's relationship with money. <laughs> so a third thing that I want to say in the answer to your question about my life is that I have a very probably unique and maybe mysterious relationship with understanding people's relationship with money and life. And I wrote a book called The Soul of Money, which you probably read, I think. And I started an institute called The Soul of Money. So throughout all of what I've just shared with you, I've been working with people and their relationship with money and how their relationship with money often dribbles over in defining, informing, and sometimes screwing up or healing their life. And so the Soul of Money Institute is my business. The Pachamama Alliance is my service along with the Hunger Project. And so that's who I am and what I've been doing for the last 40, 50 years. <laughs> Besides raising my children and having grandchildren and being happily married for many, 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 many decades. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so grateful. And I was so fascinated to 
hear the trajectory of your journey going from the Hunger Project to the Pachamama Alliance to the Soul of Money. And I, and I was thinking, how did that all unfold for her? So I'm so glad that you shared all of that. My husband actually was the one who first told me about you. He heard you speak at Awesomeness Fest in 2011. And yeah, and he read your book and he booked a Pachamama journey, which he couldn't end up going on, which just became a donation. So my husband was, yeah, he first, you know, read your book in 2011 and saw you speak at Awesomeness Fest. And when I told him I was interviewing you, he said, oh my gosh, she's the most incredible storyteller. Get her to tell her story. So yes, he is definitely right. You are an incredible What's his name? Story. Nick Broadhurst. Oh, wonderful. Oh my goodness. That's just fantastic. Yes. Well, say hello to him for me. That's awesome. He did actually chat to you at the event and you probably spoke to so many people there though, but he just absolutely loves and adores you and your book changed his life. And I do want to talk about, you know, the soul of money, how to transform your relationship with money and life, because it's so powerful. And I just want to honor you as well for, you know, the Pachamama Alliance and all the work that you've done in the world. It's just incredible. And now you've, yeah, you've transitioned to really helping people transform their relationships with money and life. So what is the soul of money? Like, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I, people ask me, what does the soul of money mean? And they say money doesn't have a soul. It's almost like a little bit of a trick title, I'll say, because Money doesn't have a soul, but we do. And we can give soul to money and we can have money carry the longing of our soul. And the soul of money is really an inquiry, a discovery, a process, a revealing, a transformational endeavor to unearth and you could say do the archaeology to find out how and why we have so much anxiety around our relationship with money. What is the source of the suffering? You know, I have the great privilege of working with some of our global billionaire families, some of our multimillionaire families, as well as people who can't make rent and who've lost their business in in the COVID pandemic. And a lot of people in between, like, you know, kind of all of us. And to a person, really, almost everybody, no matter how much they have or don't have or whatever they fall on that grand scale, they have wounds and hurts and feel ashamed often and confused in their relationship with money. Anxiety in people's relationship with money is the source of so many divorces, so much suffering, so many lawsuits, so many ugly divorces and child custody suits and litigations. And and then people feeling guilty about not doing something they should have done or shouldn't have done something they did do. So we all have so many wounds and hurts around our relationship with money. And it's so private and we feel so bad about it. Most of us, not every single person, but really very much the majority of people. So since I've managed fundraising so many different countries and so many different cultures from Ghana and Senegal and Mozambique to China and Korea and Japan and Sweden and France and Germany and the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, Every culture has a different money culture, but sort of by and large, people are constantly upset in their relationship with money. So I really started to realize there's something there that I need to study or I wouldn't have had all these experiences, all these opportunities to talk to so many people. 
about making contributions to the things they care about. So fundraising for me is a kind of sacred exploration in our relationship with money and life. And I discovered that we are haunted by what I call the most central lie that we tell in our relationship with money, or the money culture is more accurate, and the culture fosters a belief, an unconscious, unexamined belief in a mindset of scarcity. And I'm calling it an unconscious, unexamined belief and an unconscious, unexamined mindset, meaning we don't even know that we think this. It's from where we think, not what we think. So it's not that we look out and say, oh, there's not enough. No, we think from there's not enough. And then we look out in the world. And the mindset of scarcity, the unconscious, unexamined mindset wrecks havoc on this planet in our relationship with ourselves, each other, the natural world, and all forms of life. And that mindset is distinct from actual scarcity, which does exist. I worked on hunger. I worked on poverty. I know there's places and people who don't have enough food, don't have access to water, have lost their job, don't have education, have real honest-to-God needs. But I'm not talking about that set of circumstances. I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about a mindset that haunts primarily people living in affluent cultures, that where we look out in the world and what we see is, I didn't get enough. I didn't get enough sleep. I didn't get enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't look good enough. I'm not young enough. I don't have this. We don't have that. There's not enough of this. There's not enough of that. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in the night. There's not enough days in the week. There's not enough weekend. There's not enough market share. There's not enough volunteers. There's not enough, et cetera. There's not enough. There's not enough. It's not enough. We don't have enough. And then we fill in the blank with whatever's in front of us. And it's an unconscious, unexamined mindset that creates an us and a them. Because if you think there's not enough, you really believe that, or even before believing it, it come from there. You have the responsibility, almost the accountability to accumulate as much as you possibly can. Because if you think there's not enough to go around and someone somewhere is always going to be left out, you want to make sure it's not you or someone you love. So you start to distinguish, oh, these are my people. I'm going to make sure we, whoever we are, have enough, even even if it's the expense of these poor people over here, over there. And when we have way more than we need, we'll help them. But we need to be totally secure before we do. And so that mindset that there's not enough to go around and someone's always going to be left out haunts the human family, is the source of our political decisions. It's the source of the way we run our economies. It's the source of the way we run our lives. And it's the first lie, I'm calling it a lie because I think it's inaccurate, in the great condition or mindset of scarcity which has three toxic lies, the first being there's not enough, the second being more is better, an unconscious, unexamined attitude of more of anything, more this, more that, more clothes, more shoes, more market share, more this, more money, more, 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 an unconscious drive, almost obsession with more indiscriminate, which is destroying us and destroying the planet and we're destroying each other with it. And then the third toxic myth, so first, there's not enough, Second, more is better. Third, that's just the way that it is. And you can't do anything about it. You just need to go along. And that third toxic myth, that's just the way that it is, is the source of resignation, 
It's a source of apathy. It's a source of depression. It's the source of obesity. It's a source of all kinds of maladies in our culture of there's not enough, more is better, and that's just the way that it is, and you've got to play along. And so I, um, I learned that from the great Buckminster Fuller, who I mentioned earlier, that there's a whole nother way to look at life that I discovered, and I will say with great humility, is most probably the radical surprising truth. And I'll get to that in a moment. But have I answered your, your question a little tiny bit? Yeah, that is so helpful. Can you keep sharing about that? Well, once I realized that the mindset of scarcity was a mindset, and then we make it true by the way we behave, by hoarding and accumulating more than we need in a way that millions of people are completely left out. I realized from really interacting with the great Buckminster Fuller, who said that there's enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. There probably always has been. There has clearly been enough since he declared that. And when I heard him declare it in 1976, probably before many people who are listening to this were born. And I was there when he said humanity in 1976, Bucky was in his 80s at that time, Buckminster Fuller. Humanity has reached a kind of threshold now where we have crossed a threshold from a you or me paradigm, the scarcity paradigm where we live in a belief that there's not enough to go around. And we live in a world where maybe that's even the case. But now we've crossed a threshold where our ingenuity, our genius, our innovation, our science, our inventiveness, is producing so much more with so much less that we clearly now and will forevermore live in a world where there is enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. And when Buckminster Fuller, in this presentation I attended, said the word enough, which I want to emphasize, that word sent shivers up and down my spine like a Kundalini experience. I started to cry. My hands started to perspire. I was just trembling in my seat in that auditorium. I didn't understand why. I couldn't have explained it to you at the time, but it went right into the soul of who I am. And I experienced the distinction enough, not the amount, the distinction. Bucky said, this is not an amount of anything. It's a state of being enough, sufficiency. We have sufficient resources for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. But here's the kicker, he said in 1976, we will not realize it. We will not be able to embody it. We will not be able to really understand it for somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years. He said that in 1976. So you and I are having this conversation in 2021. We're right around 50 years later. And Bucky said, here's why, because he said we wouldn't realize it or be able to find our way there for 50 years because the institutions of humankind, the economy clearly is rooted in an you or me understanding of the world rather than the other side of the threshold, a you and me understanding of the world. You or me is an expression of a mindset of scarcity. Either you make it at my expense or I make it at your expense. 
because there's not enough for both of us. That's a mindset of scarcity. On the other side of this threshold is another world. It's called the you and me world. You and I can both make it at no one's expense. It's a completely different world. It's a completely different paradigm, a paradigm of sufficiency. And so he said, the institutions of humankind are all rooted in a misunderstanding of the world, in a paradigm of you or me. The economy is clearly rooted in a you or me understanding of the world, a scarcity paradigm. Education is rooted in a you or me understanding of the world or misunderstanding of the world. Governance is rooted in a you or me paradigm. Even religion, he said boldly, is rooted in a you or me understanding of the world. He said it will take 50 years from 1976 to right around now for all of these institutions that we live inside of to become so dysfunctional that we cannot fix them. And they will start to fall apart before our very eyes. And the only way through will be to rebirth them, recreate them, regenerate them from a you and me paradigm, a completely new paradigm, a paradigm where you and I can both make it at no one's expense. And he said it will take 50 years for them to be so dysfunctional that they will begin to collapse around us. And I would say that that prediction is now coming true. And the economy, certainly in my country, the United States, the pandemic has forced the economic collapse of my own country, the strongest economy on earth. Our democracy is collapsing, has really pretty much collapsed. Education is collapsing. You could say it's a pandemic, but it's been hurting all along. And clearly, the religions of the world are not answering the most basic questions that they were designed to create and to answer and to address. So. Where we are now, I think, is the opportunity to recreate life, regenerate life, reset, reboot, resource, reimagine life from a context of sufficiency. And that context or that principle of sufficiency is this. If you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what we're scrambling to try and get more of, it frees up oceans of energy that's all tied up in that chase to turn and pay attention to what you already have. When you actually pay attention to what you already have, when you nourish what you already have, when you make a difference with what you already have, it expands. So I'll say that one more time. It's the principle, I call it, of sufficiency. If you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is the scramble of life now, it frees up Oceans of energy that's all tied up in that scrambling chase, that franticness, to turn, calm down, and pay attention to what you already have. When you nourish what you already have, when you love what you already have, when you make a difference with what you already have, and when you share what you already have, it expands before your very eyes. Or what you appreciate. So that was a long way to answer your question, but that's really the message, the work the central essence of the Soul of Money book and the Soul of Money Institute and all of our Soul of Money courses. That's the heart and soul of everything that we teach. I love it. And I love that quote so much. What you appreciate appreciates when you land on your website 
it's smack bang right at the top and it's such a powerful quote because gratitude is everything. When you have gratitude and appreciation for what you already have, it does, it doubles, it appreciates and your soul expands. So I love all of this so much. Thank you for sharing. For someone listening who may think I'm in that place where I'm not appreciating what I currently have, I am always searching, looking like I don't have enough and I feel that lack mentality. Like what are some of the first steps that they can do to help them transform their relationship with money? Well, I'll, I'll give you some practical steps, but they're contextual, but they're practical. First, to realize that that scarcity mentality lives in the culture and then you have personalized it. It's not who you are. It's not who I am. It's not who any of us are. The scarcity mentality lives in the culture of money, the commercial culture, the consumer culture that we're all swimming in with massive advertising, massive messaging, some of it subliminal, some of it very visible, telling you you're not okay until you acquire this next thing. Those messages are so strong, so clever, so successful, so psychologically geared to have you doubt whether or not you're going to be okay without this pair of shoes or this new pair of jeans or this or that or the other thing or this house or this boat or this whatever, that we fall prey to it. But it's not who we are. It's not who you are, whoever's listening, not who you are. It's the water you're swimming in tells you that over and over and over and we bought into it but it's not who you are. And we personalize it, make it our own problem. So if that one thing, if you can just realize it's in the culture, it's not your personal rainstorm, it's raining on everybody else too, that relieves a little bit of the pressure. Number two, to recognize and acknowledge that that mindset is probably the way you were raised, probably the way your faith was organized. It is the way the economy is wired, designed to drive debt rather than profit. That is what it's designed to do. Money comes into existence with interest attached, so there's always less money in in circulation than there is uh, money owed. That's the nature of our economic system. So it's not your quote-unquote fault. You're swimming in those shark-infested waters. So that relieves some of the pressure. Then secondly, when you actually let go of that, even for the moment, like when you watch the sunset, or you sit at the bottom of a glorious tree, or you see a baby born, you know there's no scarcity on this planet. It really doesn't exist. We have our moments of awe, of inspiration, of absolute, total, profound wonder and perfection. So we know it exists. But I ask that all of you listening realize that if you can make a practice of looking at the great fullness of your life, the friends you have, the love you have for the natural world, or maybe for your cat, your pets. Maybe it's for your car, that's fine too, or your your new computer or that amazing phone that will do anything for you. When you actually pay attention to what you already have with your full attention and fully and deeply appreciate it and look at the great fullness of your life, naming the people that you love, the people that love you, You know, maybe it's like you love the the chair at your desk. Maybe you love the fact that you can go on Netflix and watch almost anything. You know, what are the things you love about your life? And actually share that with other people and use the word 
these are the things I love about my life. The word love, not I like that I am happy about, no, that I love about my life and that I'm so grateful for. It's the great fullness of my life. You will get filled up. You'll be moved to tears. That's a practice to do almost every night, almost in every conversation. It's not boastful. It's humbling. When someone says, I am so fortunate and blessed with the relationship I have, I just love my home. It's a small cottage. Yes, it's modest, but I love it. There's a good feeling that is emanating from that person that touches every other life. When you look at the great fullness of your life, you will be in touch with gratitude and thanksgiving. And gratefulness is a very important practice. It is a muscle. You know, if you're a tennis player, you get better and better and better when you serve over and over and over again or ski, you know, more and more and more. Gratitude is a practice. It's a muscle. So a gratitude practice, speaking about what you're grateful for, writing down what you're grateful for, keeping a gratitude journal, writing five things down you're grateful for at the end of every single day, waking up in the morning and being grateful for how much sleep you got, not trying to figure out whether it was enough or not, but knowing I'm so grateful I had that kind of sleep. That is a practice, just like anything else. And it's a conversation that you generate for yourself and with other people around you that creates an environment of nourishment, gratefulness, satisfaction, and sufficiency. You cannot get to true prosperity, I believe, through the doorway of more. It will always give you lack and you just need more again. I, you know, I've really had conversations with people who have hundreds of millions of dollars who did not feel like they had enough till they just had to have a little bit more. It doesn't make any sense to the rest of us, but it's just the same as somebody who's making $50,000 thinking, well, if I just made 70000 everything would be okay. And then once they make 75000 they think they need 100000 It's all the same. It's just different levels of the same conversation. So to find the great fullness in what you already have. And actually, it's a practice, the practice. And to speak from there is a, a way through. And then third, to end every interaction, even the most harsh and difficult ones, with seeing how has this nourished, supported, empowered, and taught me that which I need to do to grow and develop myself into a greater and fuller human being. Because life is a gigantic classroom. And sometimes the teachings are harsh and hurtful and something that we did not want. But it's almost always what we need. And if we trust the universe and see that life is not happening to us, it's happening for us. We reap the harvest of every moment. A divorce, a bankruptcy, the death of a friend or a, a parent can be a deep and profound loss. Yes, a grief. Yes, a sadness, yes, a tragedy, and an opportunity for enormous growth. So there isn't anything that you can't find something about it to be grateful for. I absolutely agree. There's always gold. There's always a little nugget of wisdom, and we just have to go digging for it. I'm just popping in to tell you about one of my favorite products that I love and use every single day, and that is my blue light blocking glasses by Blue Blocks. Nick and I love them so much that we collaborated with them to create the Nick and Melissa range, which are stunning and my absolute favorites. 
We honestly wear these every single day and night and take them with us when we travel and even when we go to friends' places for dinner. And if you've heard my episodes with Andy Mant and Jack Cruz on the harmful effects of blue light, you will know how detrimental blue light is for our health, hormones, eyes, and sleep, which is why I personally use them every single day. But they don't just do blue light blocking glasses. They also have awesome yellow and red light bulbs that you can install in your home, which have zero flicker, low EMF, and zero blue light. As you guys know, I'm currently pregnant, and I recently learned that if I wake up in the night to feed my baby and turn on the blue lights, this will affect my milk production, the quality of my milk, and the supply. So this is yet another reason why we need to get rid of all of the blue light in our home. Another one of my favorite products is their sleep mask, which blocks out all, and I mean all of the light, not like those cheap eye masks that you can get. I wear this every single night and I love it. And you can get any of their Epic products 15% off with the code MELISSA. Just head to blueblocks.com forward slash Melissa. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com forward slash Melissa and enter the code Melissa at the checkout and come and tell me on Instagram what you think of their products. Now let's get back to the conversation. What is your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to? Well, I think success, the word success has been hijacked by, by money, like everything else. You know, we've made money more important than human life. We've made money more important than the natural world. We've made money more important than spirit of God. And that's a distortion of the human journey. So when we say success in the context where money is more important than anything, we mean, is your daughter successful? We're really asking, is she making money? But true success is not it doesn't mean you don't have any money, but it doesn't depend on your financial balance sheet. It's really about your sense of self. And I would say success is someone who's living their values, who knows how to access their own integrity meter, and who's living in a state of well-being. Well-being is the form of wealth that I think we all really want. And the word wealth, W-E-L, uh, W-E-A-L-T-H, the etymology of that world is well-being. That's where it comes from. And the etymology of the word well-being is the well of being that is infinite in every one of us. The well of being in you, Melissa, is from whence you created this incredible podcast and why you have so many followers, because you constantly draw on the well of being in yourself and in your guest. And that is the source of true success, true capacity to prosper. Prosperity is not also about money, although that's wonderful when people have financial resources. I'm all for that. It's just not the be-all, end-all. It's one dimension of wealth or well-being. And so the well of being is the source of true success. And when we're in touch with that, we know it. We feel it. Our life is in tune. It's almost like an instrument that's perfectly in tune and things start to flow. And I consider that to be success. That's a life worth living, a life where you feel that you're an instrument for the good. So that's what I consider to be success. 
I love that. What is bringing you the most joy in your life right now? Oh, that's a good question. Well, my grandchildren are a source of enormous joy for me. They're crying if I talk about them. (laughs) They're so awesome. And one thing that Bucky taught my husband and myself and many other people, but he said it personally to us, he said, never forget that your children, and he would say now your grandchildren, are your elders in universe time. They've come into a more complete, more evolved universe than you can ever understand except through their eyes. As much wisdom as you have to offer them, know that they are your elders in universe time. And that, I don't know why that sentence, that phrase, changed everything for me with my kids. And it's that way with my grandkids. They they are, there's something so awesome about the way they see the world that I want to see through them. And I do see it through them when I'm with them. So my, my grandchildren are a huge source of joy for me. Another source of joy for me is the work we do with Indigenous people. And the Indigenous people, particularly of the sacred headwaters of the Amazon, are, you know, they've got their problems, they've got their challenges, but they're so present. And they're so in tune with the spirit world, the natural world. They are instruments. They don't live in the forest. They are the forest. I've drawn so much solace and wisdom from them during the pandemic because they see the pandemic as a teaching, as a as an announcement, as a powerful ally to the to the species that's lost its way, ours, as a as a disruption that we couldn't create on our own from a way of living that was heading it's heading towards extinction unless we, we change course. So the virus helped us disrupt our way of living. It comes from the earth. It comes from the mother. And when I look at that and hear the indigenous people talk about what's going on, it calms me down. It has me understand it and make sense of it. And it's not that it gives me joy, but it gives me access to my capacity to continue to create joy for myself and others. And then um, our work at the Soul of Money Institute um, gives me joy. We are, the pandemic has forced our hand to put everything online. And as much as I love being, um, how much I would love to be in Australia with you, right across from you at a table, be able to hold your hands as I say this, you know, get a box of Kleenex so that our tears will (laughs) flow into something that we can wipe away, that I can do this with you from Boulder, Colorado, between what I was doing just before we have dinner here and, you know, in a different time zone and different day is such a miracle. And the Soul of Money Institute is now our messaging, which I think is really relevant to the times we're living in, is available to thousands, literally millions of people online. And it wasn't before. We did some online stuff. People would go to our website and read stuff. They could read my book. They could watch a few videos. But now we can actually, we have courses. We have a course called Peace and Freedom with Money and Life that runs all the time that people can sign up right now. And it's, you know, six, seven, eight weeks. I can't remember, but it's just beautiful. It's these messages going deeper. We have another version of that that's sort of a 2.0 that's from scarcity to prosperity that we're starting up in May. And, you know, I hope we have thousands of people in that course. We're doing another course called Awakening Women because women have so many challenges with money and life now. So at the Soul of Money Institute, what what's giving me joy is that we have now found our way to, you know, I didn't think you could produce transformation 
on the internet. But now I realize, absolutely you can. Oh my God, people are so present on this screen right now. And we've all learned how to live this way with this situation. And there's so many benefits. There's drawbacks, yes, but there's benefits. So that gives me joy that our work is so accessible. And then finally, what gives me joy, it's not finally, there's so many things, but um, but my my husband, <laughs> who's my soulmate and my beloved, and um and our capacity to work together now, which we kind of couldn't do when we were younger. We were too much about ourselves and I'm doing it this way, you do it that way. And and we're we're so off it, if you know what I mean. Off our we we're we're just we can work together in a rhythm, in a collaboration that, you know, one plus one equals 10 rather than two. So I'm just thinking about him right now. <laughs> How long have you guys been married? Uh, 54 years. Uh, we've been together and married for 54 years. We got married pretty fast, but we've been together for 54 years. A long time. Wow. <laughs> I am so excited to be able to say that one day with my husband because I feel exactly the same way. You know, it's just so we're going on, is it seven or eight years? I think it's eight years. <laughs> is it? Yes. And I can't wait to say one day, 54 years married. That's just so beautiful. And I can feel your love for him. It's just so beautiful and so inspiring so incredibly inspiring. So yeah, thank you for sharing all of your joys with us. Mm, Thank you. I'd love to hear, you know, what are you working on within yourself at the moment? You know, we're always growing and evolving. What's really current for you that you're working on? Well, I'm working on a new book, which is on the Sophia century, which is the century we're in now, which I call the Sophia century, the century when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come back into balance or come into balance maybe for the first time. And really empowering women through our program, The Remarkable Women's Journey, and next year's big program called the Sophia Century Circles, to really find and fully express our voice and for men to find that feminine place in themselves that's unexpressed and for us to relax the masculine in ourselves so that it relaxes and fulfill this beautiful prophecy of the Baha'i people that says that in this century, 21st century, the uh, bird of humanity, which has a male wing and a female wing, has been flying for hundreds of years, primarily with just the male wing, fully extended, fully flapping. In fact, overdeveloped male wing on the bird of humanity because the feminine wing and the bird of humanity, the female wing isn't fully expressed, isn't fully unfurled. So the male wing has had to become overmuscular, overdeveloped, and ultimately violent to keep the bird of humanity afloat. And we've been flying in circles for hundreds of years. And the prophecy says that in the 21st century, the female wing in all of us, men and women, will fully express itself in a way that the male wing can relax finally a little bit. And the bird of humanity, instead of flying in circles, will soar. And so I'm working on that. I'm working on the female wing in all of us, men and women, and the relaxation of masculine wings so that the bird of humanity can soar. And then I'm working on with the Pachamama Alliance as a founder with my husband, Bill, and my good friend, John Perkins, how to have a founder-led and founder-driven organization flourish 
beyond the founders without the founders having to die or retire or not get involved at all to make room for the younger, vibrant, energetic people. Because we're not probably ever going to retire, but we're stepping back and how to do that in a way that creates room and space for the leadership to emerge naturally and in a way that has continuity and integrity and that everyone is seen and heard and nourished. So those are my those are my big challenges right now that I'm focused on. Beautiful. Thank you Thank for asking. You. Thank you for sharing. And I can't wait to read that book. It sounds amazing. And speaking of books, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your book and your future book, let's pretend they're already in the curriculum. What is one other book you would choose? Gosh, I really don't know. There's so many beautiful ones. I'm always, it's always the one I'm reading at the moment, (laughs) but I'll say Into the Magic Shop by Jim Doty. Into the Magic Shop by Jim Doty. It's a story, the story of a neurosurgeon's path from abject poverty and feeling stupid to being the leading neurosurgeon in the world. Visualization, meditation, and following his own inner guidance. That sounds amazing. I really want to read that. I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well as your incredible book and all of your work. But that sounds amazing and very inspiring. So I think that'd be great for those high school age children. So thank you. Now, I'd love to talk about how your day looks. I know no two days are ever the same, but I love hearing about people's rituals and routines and you know, do you meditate, you know, talk us through a a quote unquote typical day in your life. Well, let's see. I'm a meditator, not like ours, but I do meditate very, my own way, my own methodology. I, I, I draw on many, many, many teachers and change it all the time, but I do, I do that. I love that discipline. I am a, you know, committed like probably everybody to exercise and um, moving my body. Um, there's something called the PAR course, which is an exercise course that's right near my home. I live in a place where I can just go outside and there it is in a beautiful place called the Presidio right near my home. So I do that. I, I do yoga. So those things are kind of in the morning. And I'm right now, it's kind of interesting you're asking me that. I'm, I'm doing a, a, a feng shui practice. You may know of it. 27.9. I'm in day seven. Um, you give give up or give away or discard or send to the goodwill or the Salvation Army 27 things a day for nine days straight. And you wow. don't miss a day. If you miss a day, then you start over again. And at the end of the nine days, 27 things sounds like a lot, but you can just do it with your desk. You know, take, open the drawers and <laughs> look at all the things that you really don't need or your closet or your shoes. Uh, and that's a very powerful feng shui practice that that I'm do- I'm in the middle of right now. I'm day seven, and you know the feng shui people say that then a miracle will occur. That it'll create space for a miracle to show up in your life if you clear declutter your physical universe. So that's a practice I'm I'm doing right now because it's Lent, and uh, I was raised a Catholic. I don't practice Catholicism anymore, but I do practice Lent with a Benedictine monk named Brother David Stendelrost. Who wrote? Uh, who writes on gratefulness? Who has a website called gratefulness.org that really fosters grateful living? 
And then um, I'm sitting here in this room with my friend who's over in a chair listening to this. Her name is Sarah Vetter, and she's at the Soul of Money Institute with me. And we do something every day right now called a Trinity, which comes from a, a, an American teacher named Regina Thomas-Shower, often called Mama Gina. And a Trinity is a three-part practice. Do you know Mama Gina? I know Mama Gina, yes. Okay. So you know what a Trinity is. So we do a Trinity every every evening or every night to complete the day, which is almost a form of a gratitude practice. I also do gratitude practice, but you do what's called a brag, say something you're proud of that you want to acknowledge about what happened that day or what you've accomplished. You then say something about what you're grateful for. And then you say what you desire or what you want your intention is for the future. And it's another practice. And then I'm on Zoom, just like everybody else from morning till night. But I get up between Zoom meetings whenever I can. And I work on the third floor of my house. So I go up and down the stairs maybe 20 times a day. And then we have a, a love in our family. And Sarah and I particularly have a love for dancing. So we try to incorporate dancing, like Mama Gina incorporates it, in every day somehow, dancing to wonderful music. So those are practices. And then I really stop working now. This is the pandemic's really helped me with this. I stop working. I get I get up super early. I like to get up really early, 536. And I stop working around 5, 530, sometimes a little earlier than that now. And then I love sitting down to an early dinner with the people in my household. There's six of us living uh, in my household. And we have dinner and conversation and we take the evening off. And I never did, my whole life I haven't done that till now. So I'm really grateful for that. Then I'm a big sleeper. So that's, you want to know about my whole day. I love to sleep and I start getting ready to go to bed at nine o'clock. I don't start sleeping at nine o'clock, but I'm ready and either in the bed or heading towards it right around nine-ish. Uh, and then I do that all over again. <laughs> so does that answer your question about what's a day in the life of of Lynn Twist? And, and you know, that. the Zoom meetings are beautiful conversations with people. And almost every meeting that, that I'm conducting, we end with appreciations so that every every meeting ends with what we appreciate about the meeting or about each other to keep that uh, muscle always exercised. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And once you get into the daily habit of it, it just, it becomes like the norm. It becomes like brushing your teeth. You don't have to think about it. So yeah, my husband and I do three things we're grateful for every morning and we have some beautiful little rituals that we do and it just makes such a difference. And yeah, we don't even think about it anymore. It's just like brushing our teeth. Yeah, well, I'm running uh, a little bit of short of time, so I just want to yes. say that. So if, yes, if, yes, just I've so got to let you know. Yes, I'm, okay, I've got another appointment uh, right after this, so just want to let you know that. Yes, let's wrap this up. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, what is one thing that we can do today for our health? Dance. Oh yes, I love that you said that. What's one thing that we can do today for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Celebrate what you already have and pay attention to what it is. Beautiful. And what is one of the most important things that we can do today for more love in our life? To communicate to the people that you love about what you love about them and what you love about their life and what you love about your own life. Mm, that's beautiful. 
Lynn, you are helping so many people. You are supporting so many people. You are such a light for so many people. And all the work that you do, your books, your events, your programs are just serving and helping so many people. And I'm so grateful for all of the wisdom that you have shared with us today. And I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back to you because you give so much. How can we give back to you today? Um, Well, I'm pretty aware that you and the people who run your program have something called a free gift that uh, for the Soul Money Institute that I'd like you to make available to everybody who's listening. And it's it's a little 10-minute little teaching from me that will lead them to understand what we talked about today a little bit more and then other opportunities that we have uh, for Soul of Money Institute. You can go to pachamama.org, P-A-C-H-A-M-A-M-A.org and make a contribution to the Pachamama Alliance. And third, you can buy uh, or read or borrow from the library, The Soul of Money, and spread that message everywhere you go. Those are three things to do. Perfect. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes. Lynn, it has been such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your wisdom. I'm so grateful. And I wish we could have done this in person, but this is this is the next best option. So thank you for being here and sharing with us today. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you, everyone. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. I loved that conversation. I love that woman and I highly recommend getting her book and reading it, especially if you want to heal your relationship with money. I got heaps out of this episode, and if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together, and it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's five-star review titled All the Feels Every Time from Audiobook Jogger, and she says, Melissa radiates the most gorgeous energy through all that she does, and you feel part of her sparkly energy shining through each episode. Whether I'm in the car, kitchen, or out walking in nature, each episode infuses that space with oh-so-much-golden-energy goodness, and I get all the feels. As a fellow healer in the wellness space, I'm forever inspired and uplifted by Melissa's work. You are my soul sister in business someone I turn to whenever I feel overwhelmed and need a shining star to turn to. Thank you. Thank you, Audiobook Jogger, for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful. And as a little thank you, I want to gift you one of my top favorite products, and that is some goodies from Hydrogen Health. All you have to do is email hello at melissaambrosini.com with your address, and we'll send that over to you as soon as possible. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading everything that you get out of each episode. So please come and continue to share them with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. 
You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.